0: All right, first, super important disclaimers before we jump in. This podcast describes stunt driving done on movie sets by professional drivers and stunt persons. Never attempt any of the movie scenes described. Toyota does not condone street racing or any other illegal driving behavior, so please always obey traffic laws. A reminder that modifying your vehicles with non-genuine Toyota parts can negatively affect your warranty, safety performance, and street legality. And
1: as you know, this podcast is brought to you by Toyota Motor Sales USA, Inc., and may not be reproduced or redistributed in whole or in part without prior permission of Toyota. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and our hosts, and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Toyota. Please note that Toyota is not responsible for any errors or the accuracy or timeliness of the content provided. Used with permission, all rights reserved. Worldwide. Right, right now. The Lexus LF430.
2: The Toyota MR2 sports car. Everything
0: keeps going
1: right.
2: Toyota. Lexus, the result of our relentless pursuit of perfection. Oh, what a feeling. Toyota. Toyota. Let's go places.
1: and welcome to Toyota Untold, I'm Tyler. And I'm Kelsey. And today we are talking about uh, the Fast and the Furious, not just the movie, we're actually talking about the cars, the Toyota vehicles featured in the movie and kind of how they got in there. Very exciting stuff. But my first question,
0: Kelsey, were you into that franchise at all? I love the Fast and the Furious franchise. I love all nine movies. I love the, the aspirational aspect of it where it's like it's something I don't know a lot about I will never do and I don't know I just felt like it was like cool especially in 2001 it was Mm -hmm. cool it was cool to watch and so um, and I love all the people in it
1: yes I love all the actors
0: and I mean the, the Supra was iconic like I will say like I definitely I didn't know a lot about cars when I was 11 but I definitely didn't know much about the Toyota Supra but that movie brought the Supra a lot of notoriety that people in the community already knew that it had but now it was mainstream. And so mm-hmm. I was really really curious on how it got placed in this movie.
1: Yeah, so you know, it's the type of movie that we had on on the weekends and it would be on my husband loves to watch it and put it on and I watched them some of them kind of through osmosis I became, you know.
0: I like the movies.
1: I think they're yeah. good and they're fun to watch. You can't say it's a boring movie to watch. Right.
0: And I mean it's it would I think a lot of people would want to know, how did they pick the cars that went into the movie? Why those cars?
1: Yes. And so today, we're going to talk to Craig Lieberman, who actually had his car in the movie and was deeply involved in kind of talking about this car culture. So with that, Kelsey, let's get into it.
0: Let's go. So the Fast and the Furious was released in 2001, as most of us know, and the movie has gone on to spawn one of the biggest media franchises in the world. The series is largely known for its wealth of huge stars, including Vin Diesel. Let's not forget The Rock. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Ludacris. (sighs) Had to pause for a moment. And Michelle Rodriguez. But those are just the people. So what about the cars? One of the series' most iconic non-human stars is the Toyota Supra driven by Paul Walker's character in the first movie. That car belonged to Craig Lieberman, former director of the National Import Racing Association and technical advisor on The Fast and the Furious and its sequel, Too Fast, Too Furious. I love that one. (laughs) If
1: anybody, you know, in another episode of Toyota Untold, we talk about do cars have souls? And if any car has a soul, it is that Toyota Supra from Fast and the Furious. Absolutely. You are just a passionate enthusiast of vehicles overall, correct, Craig?
2: Yes. It's an addiction for which there is no cure, apparently.
1: (laughs) Except maybe a larger garage.
2: (laughs) I like where your head's at.
1: (laughs) Cars can become a lifelong obsession, and it's something that often starts young. When I was little, my dad got a 1967 Chevy Camaro that we found uh, covered in sap underneath a tree in New Jersey, and he and my brother started to fix it up, and of course, who else gets involved but me? I gapped the sparks plugs, I changed the tires, took batteries out on that vehicle, and I just helped my dad and my brother with whatever was needed on that Camaro. We still have it. It is gorgeous. um, And we love to take it out. In fact, uh, a couple weeks ago, we took it out and my son cried because it was too loud. (laughs) But (laughs) So we actually asked Craig how he became a motorhead.
2: When I was about three years old, my dad handed me a Batmobile and I was inquisitive about the car. And then there was a cartoon that was on back in the days of television where people actually watched television when there was a cartoon called speed racer and i said to myself at a young age someday i'm gonna own a car with lots of buttons on the steering wheel and that got me motivated and then by the time i was a teenager my father said to me i don't know why you're messing around with cars gonna do nothing for you in life it's a waste of time what are you doing over here
1: at that point, you got to prove a point.
2: <laughs> absolutely. If your parents tell you not to do it, you are absolutely going to do it. I just started tinkering with cars because when I was young, we weren't exactly rich. So I was always into Japanese cars. Where I grew up, north of the San Fernando Valley and Santa Clarita, most people in that my neighborhood were into muscle cars. And I, I just didn't get that gene that I was all about muscle cars. I liked the, the little cars that like 76, 77, Celica uh, hatchback, one of my favorite cars ever. I had a couple of dots and Zs back in the early days. I just went through a whole bunch of those Japanese cars and people looked at me like, why are you doing this? What do you find attractive about it? And it just went on from there. And over the years, my cars got a little better and I'd like to think a little faster. And I just kept going, it just never stopped. Back in the old days, this was with carburetors. If you don't know what a carburetor is, you can. Google it, you'll see pictures of those devices in museums probably, (laughs) but that's before fuel injection. But tinkering with these cars, trying to make them a little bit faster, always intrigued me. And by the time we got into the late 90s or mid 90s, uh, I had a crush on the Toyota Supra Mark IV. It's not the first time I had seen a Toyota Supra. I saw when the Celica ST came out in 1982, I really wanted one of those. And then I saw the Mark II Super, and I really wanted one of those. And then I saw the Mark III Super, and I really wanted those. I could not afford any of those. And then in 1997, I was in my built Mustang GT, and I got smoked on the freeway by, by Toyota Super, and I said, That's it, I'm buying one. And that car became the car that Universal used in the first movie. So the tuner culture in the mid 90s was, or early to mid 90s, was in Southern California, and it was very big, but still underground. And by the late 90s, we had car shows like Import Show-Off, uh, Hot Import Nights, and any number of other shows, and even a few drag racing series like Battle of the Imports. And I was very excited about the whole culture because it was all about taking something small, the underdog, and making it a powerhouse and beating the big guys with the big engines. And that always appealed to me.
1: So when you say you're tinkering with it, and what are the first things that you look for to do on a car? Because I feel like people immediately have a vision of what the car they want to look
2: want it to look like. I think any tuner will tell you that no matter what the base platform is, that the first thing you want to change is probably the wheels. And we look to the wheels that they are using in Japan on these cars. Because what starts in Japan finds its way across the ocean to us in southern california and we copy that so we take a look at these mag- magazines like options magazine or options videos and see what they're doing with their cars and we as uh tuners in southern california really hooked into that we wanted the same parts they had the same body kits the same wheels and the same performance parts but generally speaking. If you're buying a tuner car, a lot of people will go for a you know front engine, rear drive, turbocharged vehicle. That's the way it came from the factory. That is the base platform. It would be akin to buying a brand new house, which is a perfectly good house. It's ready to move in, but then you go through and you select different floors and you select different window dressings and all that. It's the exact same thing, really. Probably as close to it being as, as expensive as that.
1: So you see, when you see the vehicle, you see the vision of what it could be, much like the people on HGTV who are, well, we can move this wall here and put in a bathroom there, right? Right. Yeah. So talk about the cars that you've had and that you accumulated and with some of your favorites.
2: I've had, I'm on my 43rd car right now in my life. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> Amazing. How many of them do you still have?
2: I'm sitting on two right now. I have one sports car and my wife has an Audi S3. I'm currently sitting on Paul Walker's personal R34 GTR, which is on loan to me. But I've I've had some great cars. I've had an Audi RS4, a couple of BMWs, a couple of Benzes, quite a few Lexuses, quite a few, Uh, a thousand horsepower Supra, the 500 horsepower Supra that was in the movie, two Lamborghini Diablos at different times. Porsche Turbo. I've had some fun cars, so I've had a lot to compare.
1: What are the more memorable or your favorite ones?
2: Uh, E46 M3, pretty good car. Lexus GS 350, not the F Sport, the F, the GSF. My Audi RS4, R35 GTR, 996 Turbo. Those have been some of my favorite cars. And of course, the Toyota Supra.
0: They say, do what you love and you'll never work another day in your life. Turning a hobby into a career is a dream for many of us, and yet it's exactly what Craig Lieberman did. Here's how.
2: So since the 1980s, I've been working in the automotive aftermarket sector in one way or another. My first jobs were at auto parts stores. In 91, I landed at NGK Plugs, which was a, a tier one supplier to Japanese car manufacturers. And I was working out of the, I actually spent a year in Japan, and then I was working at the Irvine facility here. So I was going to a lot of race events as a motorsports marketing manager and learned a lot about cars and engine stuff that i didn't already know through my previous experiences and then i became du- uh, director of naira in 1990 i want to say it was 1996, 1997 i think it was and that was a series built around import drag racing cars we were going professional they had pro racing teams, sponsors the whole deal in the summer of 2000 a man approached me at a car show where i had my little yellow super and he told me about this movie they were working on it's called Redline and he asked me to bring my car to Universal to show it around and from there it just took off once they picked the car there there's a whole other story around that but that's basically how i got into it when they first saw the car they had a lot of questions and then they took me upstairs and i proceeded to lay out the food chain of Japanese tuner cars, the cars that you would see at the top. These are the top five most desirable cars at that moment in time. And these cars are the cars you should consider putting in your movie. You got all the usual suspects, the Toyota Supra 3000 GTs, NSXs, GTRs, all that kind of stuff. And then you go down the list, SW20, MR2, Toyota Celica, GT4, all those cars, all those great cars and so forth and so on. And so they asked me to set up casting calls. And so every Friday, RJ DeVera and I were calling all of our friends. Hey, because this was before the internet, really, because MySpace was it. There was no Facebook, no YouTube, no Instagram, no Snapchat, no TikTok, none of that. So it was internet forums and the good old fashioned phone call.
1: You're going through everybody's top eight and looking at their cars and their picture.
2: I said in my book, the first chapter is dumb luck. I happen to be standing in the right place at the right time. An older gentleman who was probably then the age that I am now starts talking to me and we have a conversation and then he invited me up to universal and all that kind of thing. But honestly, there are tens of thousands of people could have done that job as technical advice. I just had happened to have three distinct qualifications. One, I had a car that they wanted as the main car so they can rent it for me. Number two, working for Naira, I was personal friends with all the directors of marketing of the companies that would be providing the aftermarket parts that we would need to build the replicas of these cars. Because for every one car that you have, you need to have five, six, seven, eight cars as backups, stunt cars. So I had those connections. I also had the connection with Super Street Magazine because I worked under the same umbrella. So there was gonna be some cross promotion that went on there. So I was just a conduit and a Rolodex essentially. And I had a car.
0: They got just as lucky as you did then. Right.
2: I would like to think so. But honestly, like I said, there's so many thousands of people who could have done that same job. Seriously.
1: Maybe Craig did just chance his way into an amazing job through dumb luck. It's pure chance that a movie producer in need of a tuned up car saw his super one day. But at the same time, he put a lot of time and effort into customizing it. And he had the passion to show off his work. Some would argue that Craig made his own luck. Regardless, he found his way into an amazing job and one that barely anyone in the world will ever get to experience. Few of us will ever work on a Hollywood production full stop, but even fewer will know what it's like to serve as the technical director. And that's why we asked Craig to give us all the details.
2: So the day to day was I would go in and I would put together a build list and show pictures to the producers, the directors and the picture car captain saying, these are the parts I would like to put onto these cars. And so I would call these manufacturers and say, hey, we'd like to use your parts in the movie. And the way it usually works is there's product placement fees, but Universal recognized that this was a budding enterprise and they didn't have the clout yet. So they were willing for the most part to waive product placement fees in deference to donated parts or parts at cost. And so, That was a big thing, getting those parts for cheap because we only had a $2 million budget for the picture cars, which is a very low budget, and we had 48 cars to build. So it was a big thing. Then after that, I was making sure that there was proper signage on the cars, the decal placement, that, that sort of thing. I was involved with dialogue for the movie, so I was working with script writers to help them provide an element of authenticity to the dialogue. Again, as an advisor, you give them advice, they don't always take it. But again, as I was reminded many times over, the movie was not a documentary. It needed to be, I don't want to use the phrase dumbed down. Cinematic.
1: People probably don't stand around with the girls on the hood of the cars blasting the music and the but it makes really good look. Oh
2: (laughs) if you go to Hot Import Nights, we go, you'll be like, good grief. It's exactly like it was in the movie. Oh man, now I need to go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. And then after that, because I was a technical advisor, I was involved in everything from sound recordings for the cars to marketing, international DVD marketing, international release. They actually had me do a a stand up piece where I did a special feature on the DVD. It was me and the Playboy Playmate of the Year, Daleen Curtis, where we built a a tuner car from scratch, basically, which was a fun, cheeky little bit. And then sound recordings, ADR loops. It was a weird position, technical advisor, because I was there from pre-production, building the cars, stunts, actual post-production, filming all the way through to right up to we started work on Too Fast, Too Furious. So it was a weird place to be in, but a really good place as it turns out.
1: It sounds like
0: you're a jack of all trades. You did a little bit of everything, right?
2: I'm really good at giving advice.
0: I love that. Director of Unsolicited Advice. There you go. One way or another, Craig's advice on the production definitely paid off. The Fast and the Furious debuted at number one at the U.S. box office and the franchise it launched is now the 13th highest grossing movie series of all time, ahead of the Pirates of the Caribbean, Transformers, and even the Lord of the Rings movies. Wow. However, the Fast and the Furious movies are known for taking a lot of creative liberties. As Craig just said, just because you give some advice doesn't mean that they'll necessarily take it. Lord, don't I know it.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I wanted to know if, back in 2001, Craig had any idea just how successful the movie was going to be. I also wanted to know how he felt about the technical inaccuracies that made their way in.
2: We, as people who eat, sleep, and breathe the tuner world, we look at the movies as like a spoof movie, if you will, because it's the, the lines are quoted in memes all the time. I see it on CNN will post a news story, and somebody go in there and say, don't let this distract you from the fact that Hector's going to be running four, four SR20E uh, DET engines, uh, the, 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 anybody, and he bought motech system exhaust and t
0: 66
2: servers okay. and all that. It's just everywhere. It's part of American pop culture now. It For literally sure. is. I'm going to give you my candid. So, said what
0: he thought about the movies. Hey. So well, no, 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 no.
2: See, you got it. Okay, look, let me put this in perspective. Universal treated the car owners, the people who rented cars like gold. We were gods. They treated us like gold we got invited to a special airing of the movie months before it came out this was after the super bowl commercial and remember the movie came out in june so i think it was february or april after looking at my book i have the parking pass on that day we go in there and sit and watch the movie some of it didn't have the music some of it had other music some of it had time code We get all done with the movie and then all the cheesy dialogue. I don't know if you've ever watched yourself on home movies. Remember when you were really little and you were really adorable to your parents, but then you look at it when you're a teenager and say, oh my goodness, I was so goofy back then. That's... We
0: listen to ourselves on this podcast.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's always super critical of themselves. But I'm looking at this movie having being on set for many a days and seeing how cheesy the action was because all the action's being done without sound effects, right. you know, music in the background and all that. A, da, 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 Bob, cut. That's going to not play. Anyway, so I get out of the movie <laughs> and I get in the car and I call my wife and she says, how was it? I said, straight to DVD. Just <laughs> straight to DVD? Are you sure? I said, actually, sorry. They're, they're not going to be able to afford to put this on DVD. It's going straight to VHS. Oh, my goes, really? God. No. I said, yeah, it's really cheesy. It's really cheesy.
0: it's so good.
2: And so the movie came out and the story I like to tell, which is right out of Rob Cohen's own mouth. When the movie came out and he watched it the first night in the theater, he called up Neil Moritz, the executive producer. And he said, we have a cult classic on our hands. And they were right. And this is why those guys get paid the big bucks because they're absolute geniuses.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm.
2: But as a technical advisor, I've become hypercritical of movies. <laughs> and, and that the fact that I'm a world war two historian buff, yeah. I, oh, no. you know, yeah. techni- for years people are blasting me on email say this car doesn't do that that car didn't have a turbo even though you said it had a turbo in the movie and I'm like technical advisor exactly. the guys you think the guys that advised for Star Trek didn't tell them that spaceships don't need to bank in space
1: <laughs>
0: right It's all for the movie. It's all for the movie.
1: Similarly, Kelsey and I, we work in social media. We just had to reshoot something for fun with a mountain bike because the mountain bike community was upset with us. So we reshot it. And literally, I used my husband who is a mountain biker and his mountain bike. And he doesn't he wears low socks. That's how he mountain bikes. And we've reposted it. And everybody in the comments is, Well, you got it wrong again. He's wearing low socks. And I'm like, That's how my husband mountain bikes. I don't know what you want me to do. So what are I supposed to be wearing? High socks, apparently. People were very yeah. upset about it. <laughs> in The Fast and the Furious, Brian O'Connor, the film's lead character, played by Paul Walker, owes Dominic Toretto, Vin Diesel, a new car after getting his old one destroyed. He finds a rusted Supra in a junkyard, and the characters set about restoring it, with the car ultimately winning several street races and taking part in a climactic chase sequence. Of course, the Supra in question belonged to Craig. We wanted to know what led him to a Supra in the first place, and if it was the same reason the movie's producers were drawn to it when they came to make the movie.
2: There's always a fondness for my Mark IV Supra because the 1,000 horsepower one was absolutely obscene. It was just a show-off car, and the orange car was like driving down the street with no clothes on. It's like everybody looked. It doesn't matter if they were young or old, but everybody looked at that car, good or bad. What You like the graphics or you don't, but still, it was a magnet for attention. As an SME, as you probably know, I know Toyota and Lexus love those terms. SME, subject matter expert. It's just my favorite. It makes it sound really important, but what it really means is you're a geek, and I can live with that. Why did they want the Supra? There were a couple of qualifications about the Supra. Number one, it had a target top. Okay, and there's a scene at the end of the movie where Paul Walker is rescuing Matt Schultz off the side of a big rig. And the only way to really pull that off is in a convertible, which wouldn't have worked or a target roof. And there were only really three cars that had a roof that might be acceptable, the 300 ZX. But it was a T-bar roof. So that wouldn't work. There's a T. It's a T-top, not really a target top.
0: So they wrote the script and then had to find a car to fit the script. Yes.
2: Yes. That's what happened. So they needed a Target Top. They needed a car that was in the tuner world and would be respected as one of you know the top-tier cars. And that pointed strongly to the Supra. When I came to Universal, there was actually a behind-the-scenes feature where Paul Walker comes down and sits in the car when it was yellow. Rob Cohen, the director, he said, take me for a little ride. So he saw that I had the two big nitrous bottles on the back. So I got on the 101 freeway. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Studio City, but the 101 freeway midday is not exactly a speedway. So. I get on, I roll on in second gear, get up to the top of the on-ramp, and I'm about 4,000 RPM, and I just lay into it, all the way to red line, all the way through third gear, second, third gear, and he screams over me, is that the nitrous? I said, no, that's the turbo! (laughs) (laughs) So we get back to the place, and he's shaky and with just a rush of joy and excitement out of him because he's a very passionate guy. He gets out of the car and he says, okay, this is the car we're going to use. And I was like, what? I've been there 15 minutes. They're going to, they decided that this is the car they're going to use. And then I went upstairs in the meeting and started telling the story.
1: And then they asked you to five, find five more of them for this. We one, did. Cars, That's and...
2: funny. I, I literally just got back from Barrett Jackson. I just got off a plane yesterday where Stump car number one is being sold at auction. Right.
1: Wow. So uh, Incredible. Yes. So it
2: goes to auction at Barrett Jackson in Las Vegas. I was there with Craig Jackson. And I was telling him all these stories I'm telling you. And the, the, the prices of Supras back then, I'm sure you've looked at prices of Supras today. A good, clean Mark IV Supra, six-speed aero top, uh, left-hand drive is up over $100,000. Wow.
1: That's crazy. What? That's
2: crazy. That's good, incredible.
1: Crazy. Yeah, yeah. And then-
2: right. And we were paying about $17,000 for Supras. We had eight of them, a total of eight, including mine. Wow. Yeah.
1: And then also as speaking of Barrett Jackson, when we first re- released the 2020 Supra and we had the first one with the VIN number 001 or whatever yeah. it was, we auctioned it off
0: for a charity yeah.
1: at Barrett Jackson. And we um, talked
0: to Craig. We did.
1: Yes. We, yeah, talked we interviewed to Craig podcast. on the
0: podcast. So was it really just the experience in the car? But, and he was like, yep, this is it.
2: The car checked a lot of boxes, right? Mark IV Super is a classic look. It was The car was bright candy yellow at the time. It was a Mazda RX-7 color. It mm-hmm. had the Targa top off, it had all the audio video in there, it had three TV screens in the car, two polished nitrous bottles in the trunk, a big wing, but a tasteful wing.
0: He's full wing. Some, That's some what of the everyone wings, says.
2: <laughs> yeah. The aluminum wings back then were all the trend. Today, I look back on them and say, yeah, not so much. <laughs> it's like that bolo tie I had back in the 80s. Yeah. I don't know what I was thinking <laughs> at that.
0: That vehicle made 16-year-old boys across the nation put wings on their honda civics so i think
2: See, <laughs> now i'm getting blamed for everything now for
0: our friends in legal toyota yeah, does not do illegal <laughs> does not support or condone nope. illegal street racing
2: that was another consideration about illegal street racing the the directors and producers of the movie were very concerned about illegal street racing of course illegal street racing's been going on since 1947 it's, it's always been around. There have been many movies about it, two, two Lane Blacktop, American Graffiti. I could go on and on. But they actually had Paul Walker do a uh, public service announcement at the front of the movie when you sat in the cinema. Right. And they basically said, yeah, all the time they were concerned. But kids are going to be kids. And they, yeah. I go to Cars and Coffee every Saturday and I see ups with Lamborghinis doing burnouts. It's really... And now there's doing?
1: a whole show, right? Street Outlaws that <laughs> talks about it in the background of that.
2: Unfortunately, I don't think it's ever going to go away.
0: Of course, even in a controlled environment like a movie set, the driving and stunts depicted in the Fast and Furious movies are incredibly dangerous and require the expertise of highly skilled professionals. Craig told us how they were able to pull some of the effects off. Again, we must remind you to never attempt any of the movie scenes described.
2: Don't do it. For Fast and Furious 1, the company that was doing it was a company called Stunts Unlimited, and they did the bulk of the work of stunts. There are actors who have their own stunt players that typically travel with them, as I understand it, because they look like that person. Like Chris Tuck was a stunt driver for Paul Walker, and he was, from my understanding, he did lots of stunts for Paul Walker because he generally fit the look of Paul Walker. Same color here, same height, same build, that kind of thing. As far as actors doing stunts, as you can imagine, for insurance purposes, certain actors do more stunts, like Tom Cruise does a lot of his own stunts. I think Johnny Depp did some of his own stunts, that kind of stuff. But for Fast and Furious, Paul Walker uh, was a car fan before the movie. He had owned a bunch of Chevys, shoebox Chevys and that kind of stuff. Over two, uh, we had a Chevy Nova and a Chevy two in the mid-60s anyway. But as the franchise went on, he got more involved in cars. He started racing and that kind of thing. So in Fast and Furious 1, I witnessed him doing the e-brake to slide for the Toyota Supra, the scene where they're shooting Johnny Tran near the climactic end of the movie. So I saw him personally doing some of that stuff. He was also in the rig car, which is a car that's mounted to a trailer and that stunt person drives the rig and he's just turning the steering wheel to make it yeah. look like he's driving, that kind of
0: thing. That's what I thought the actors did for the most part. Is
2: just- yeah, there's a lot of that. Michelle Rodriguez did not even have a driver's license before the movie. So she could literally could not drive a car. Jordana Brewster, no driver's license before the movie. Oh my goodness. The stunt director Mick Rogers taught Jordana to drive and do power slides in a Mustang.
1: With some of the actors not even holding a driver's license, I wanted to know if Craig was ever nervous letting other people drive his pride and joy, the Supra.
2: Not really. I mean, it was insured. I had an insurance certificate, a rental agreement. And I don't get that attached to inanimate objects. It could be replaced. Well, back then it could be replaced. But had they been renting that car today after the provenance of being in a movie, yeah, I'd be watching it like a
0: hawk. Right. Yeah. You didn't know what you didn't know at that point. So. And then mm-hmm. years
2: later, when we did Too Fast, Too Furious, Paul started doing some more of his own driving. They took him out to They created a professional driving school for the actors. In the stadium where the Miami Heat plays, they brought in a bunch of stunt drivers and race car drivers and taught the whole cast how to drive fast.
0: That's awesome. That's great. Some
2: people got it, some people not so much. But we had some really good people who just learned it naturally. Devin Aoki, the daughter of Benny Benny mm-hmm. the founder and brother of Steve Aoki, the DJ. She was a madman, man. She was a madman. She was great. Yeah. They were all pretty good. Tyrese, he was mm-hmm. having a lot of fun. Oh, great. He's a passionate guy.
0: The Cars and the Fast and the Furious are bright. Honestly, the colors are obnoxious. Craig super was a bold orange pearl, and the other prominent vehicles in the movies are everything from dazzling reds to neon greens. They're bold choices. Craig had this to say.
2: I learned a lot of this while working in the franchise. If you've ever been to design school, which I have not, you ever been an artist or know an artist, you can talk to them about something called color theory, right? And basically, it's what colors go with what colors and all that other kind of stuff. Me, thank God I have a wife who's in fashion. Otherwise, I'd be poorly dressed or more poorly dressed. But be that as a mate, they wanted bright, vibrant colors. And if you recall the scenes from the movie, you notice that everything seemed to have a warming filter over it. There was very orange tint to the film. That was done deliberately. Okay, So all the cars had to be bright colors so that once the warming filter was on it, they would still appear bright and be separated naturally by their colors from the background cars that we would end up having to use. Because while the actor's cars were handpicked and selected and painted a certain way, all the background cars, we had no control over that because those were people that were just renting cars to Universal for a day or for a few days. So that's how that, that whole thing came about, where they picked the colors and then they had to go into the graphics. And so that's why all these cars have strange looking graphics with very bright colors nuclear gladiators Makes sense. Tr- it's all kinds of stuff rj de vera and i rj was a, a co-technical advisor focusing on area other areas of the production but when we looked at the graphics we were like oh my goodness this is not good what are we doing we felt like they were mocking us uh. we were, seriously we felt like they were mocking us like we were that ridiculous rob cohen said it most eloquently he said look you guys look at this because you're subject matter experts and you think of it as this is completely un- unrealistic, it's inauthentic. It-, it doesn't really fit what you guys are actually doing. but you have to remember this movie is not for car experts. This movie is for average middle American young yeah. people 14 to 24 who grew up and say, just pick a random state Kansas Indiana, Ohio. Indiana, <laughs> Ohio and whatever, and they're not exposed to this culture because the cars in the different parts of the country do not look like the cars in Southern California.
1: According to research by Ensure the Gap, an astonishing 78 cars were destroyed during the filming of the first Fast and the Furious movie, and significantly more in each of the sequels. But what about the cars that production returned in working order? We wanted to know if they were restored to their original condition, or if their owners kept them with their new paint jobs and modifications.
2: So typically the cars that were rented to them already had a bunch of stuff on the car. They already had body kits. They already had wheels, tires, maybe big brakes. They had audio, video, racing seats, and all that kind of stuff. There were a few cases where cars were completely repainted. And then a few cases where those same cars got different body kits. Now, they were the people who were in that position where their car had been changed, they were paid a reconditioning fee. They could keep the parts that were on mm. the car and get a reconditioning fee to paint their car back. Universal was very good about that Mm, because even with the rental fees and the reconditioning fees, it was still cheaper than buying and building one. Yeah. So they were very cognizant of that. So there are some people who chose to get their reconditioning fee and go out and recondition their cars and throw away the parts. There are other people who kept the car exactly the way it was. Now I'm sure had anyone known that this movie would be so crazy, they would have saved every part, hung it on a wall, had the actor sign it, and then sealed it in plastic.
1: Yeah, I was oh. say, put it in a box and, yeah. <laughs> and store the key, yeah.
0: So despite its iconic status, Craig is actually no longer the owner of the super scene in the movie. We had to know how he could bring himself to part with it.
2: So I do know where the car is. It's in the Netherlands. It got sold to a buyer in Belgium about a year or so after the movie. And then another buyer bought it in the Netherlands. He still has the car. I talk to him often nice guy. It's a private collection. He takes it out to some car shows as part of a tractor trailers thing. He does some stuff in Europe, but when COVID lifts, I will be on an airplane. I'll go be reunited with the car. I have not seen it since it left. That was 18 years ago, oh, so, wow. or 19 years ago. The car sale came about like this. I was driving the car around doing some car shows and appearances for the first couple of months and I was sitting in a gas station and this kid is probably 11 sitting in the back of his mom's Ford Expedition, and she's got one of those TV screens in the back. And he looks over me with consternation. He goes, aren't you a little old to be driving a copy of a movie car? (gasps) What was your response? There's a scene in Blazing Saddles where the guy says, well, I just threw down my guns and walked away. I said, maybe this car is not age appropriate for me. And so I started entertaining offers. How are you going to drive around, 35 years old, drive around with a bright orange car, with a shopping cart wing and a nuclear gladiator on the side of the car, and then get preferential parking at Pelican Hill valet service?
0: Priorities, man.
2: (laughs) I mean, you live in South Orange County, man. You can't take that car anywhere. It just wasn't. And I I replaced it with another Japanese supercar, so that one followed pretty much the exact same path. Mm-hmm. as the super got in a movie got all of the, the crazy stuff put on the car i got it back and then i said yeah maybe this isn't age appropriate and then somebody offered me a ridiculous amount of money and i said maybe i'll just move on to something else
0: was that in another fast and furious movie or a different movie
2: it was in too fast too furious it was okay. the silver the silver gtr that paul drove
0: but you've cornered the market
2: honestly it is sheer luck yeah Just in the right place at the right time or the wrong time, depending on your perspective.
1: The Fast and the Furious movies are a huge part of American pop culture, and they've helped shape the way we think about many cars. The Supra, arguably more than any. We asked Craig what impact he thought the film had on the world of cars.
2: It brought a lot more people into the industry to to do modifications to cars. And you can argue that the later movies have done the same thing as well. With other brands but the toyota super certainly the super was already on a lot of people's radar back then but now it's iconic it is at the top of the food chain the from my own studies looking at I'm, i can tell you that these people that are 35 40 years old have been into cars pretty much their whole life Were they are into tuner cars probably because it's very difficult to go from a mustang or a charger into a japanese car because there's some kind of weird stigma in certain parts of the country that Having a Japanese car is not as cool as having an American car because that was the culture. But I think a lot of people will tell you that they've seen the movie multiple times. They learned more about supers because of the movie. And I've talked to kids now that are 12, 14 years old who weren't even around when the movie was made. And they're still telling me, I want a super when I grow up. The movie had an impact. It's undeniable.
0: Like Tyler said, when we relaunch the Supra, even in the comments, it's still, oh, I remember this from the Fast and the Furious. So glad you guys brought it back, whatever. So like the association is always there. So obviously this is a Toyota podcast. So even though Craig sold his Supra, we had to ask if he owns any other Toyota vehicles currently, because it's our job.
2: I do not. I'm between Toyotas. I was looking at other Supras, but the price tag for me would be very difficult to justify that Uh, to my wife. Now, if Toyota would like to send me an orange Supra or Supra (laughs) to drive around for a couple of months, I'll put a graphic package on it.
0: And just see what happens. See if your luck comes back. Uh, Never say never. You you said you were done driving orange cars with decals on them. But
2: it's the 20th anniversary. (laughs) We just have enough time to get the graphics on it so I can go to the movie premiere.
1: When you head to the Netherlands, maybe we can call our friends at TME and see what they have in stock for a now and then photo, how it started and how it's going. Social and how post. it ended. I'll
2: yeah. <laughs> be the poster boy for how it ended badly.
1: Working in the movie industry is a glamorous career path for a number of reasons, as well as spending time with the Hollywood stars. One of the most exciting perks of the job is the amazing places
2: you get to visit. The people who come up with the locations are just amazing. I don't know how they find these gems. Bob's Market now, every Sunday, if you go up to Bob's Market up there in uh, L.A., that place Mm -hmm. is a mob. It's every weekend, it's mobbed. It's crazy. And then the house, the the Dominic Toretto house is just up the street around the corner on East Kensington. Mm -hmm. The warehouse where we did uh, Too Fast, Too Furious, the uh, Winwood warehouse still exists. The, the bridge jumps that we did in Two Fast and Furious, absolutely amazing stuff. Yeah. So these location people find all these great locations. That's all they do. And they, it was just amazing some of these things, these places he found to shoot.
1: I can imagine that while being on set in these amazing locations, and you get to see instead of the cars moving so fast it's moving slower. And on movie sets there's a lot of downtime. It's a lot of hurry up and go. Oh, we got to wait for the lighting, is the lighting right? Yep. You know, call times, get the actors there. Is there anything memorable interactions between you and the actors, between the actors themselves, family members on set, etc.
2: anything oh,
1: yeah. cool that happened?
2: I get a couple things. There was a guy, I forget the actor's name. He was in um silence of the lambs and he was the bad guy remember that guy
1: yes okay. that puts it the lotion on his skin or else it gets bingo the again
2: so we were standing around right getting ready we're moving some cars we're over in the staging yard where there's some cars that could need to be moved and the guys were to a bunch of people i don't know if they were grips or just other people on set and they were over talking to the guy and i walked up to him and I said hey ted levine it just I, ted levine is the guy's name i said can you do the voice for me he goes, yeah. <laughs> what voice i said you know what voice it puts the lotion on the skin or <laughs> else it gets the hose again. <laughs> oh. And everybody was just in stitches. Talented it's so actor.
1: memorable. It's, that's, when you say the bad guy, that's literally the first thing I saw, I, I thought of.
2: I had a good moment with Paul Walker after I didn't see him. We traveled a bit after the first Fast and Furious movie together to do promotions on Universal's behalf, some car shows and whatnot. Then I didn't see him again until we were on set in Florida. And I walked up to him And he said, oh, Lieberman, you're back. What do do they got you doing? And so I'm just here to babysit my car. So which car is that? The one you're leaning on. (laughs) You (laughs) gave gave them another car? I said, what are you doing back? He said, apparently they think I'm an actor. So as long as they keep paying me, I'm coming back. (laughs) And i talking with him further. It turns out that if the movie had guns, cars or surfing, he was in. That was it.
0: Stick to what you know.
1: Did you happen to make it in or make any cameos in the film? I
2: I did. Oh, it's embarrassing stuff.
1: No, it's not embarrassing. It's probably an awesome story.
2: Okay, okay. So I was, because I was running the Naira series, I was at the race force scene. Remember where everybody's doing the drag racing? Mm -hmm. My job was to keep the cars moving in the background. Every 15 seconds, I needed to launch a pair of cars. So I'm doing this stuff, the little fingers up in the air kind of thing. That's my 10 seconds of fame. But the story behind that is actually pretty embarrassing, but funny.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: At one point I get the call over the radio, Craig, you got to move them faster. You got to move them faster. You got to move them faster. But most of the people that I brought up to race, we had about 30 cars that were racing and most of them were friends of mine or colleagues of mine and they knew me. But that, that particular day when we were doing that, there was a bunch of pretty girls lining the side of the track, they're standing within eye shot of the drivers, and these girls are dressed like they would be, like a like schoolgirl outfit kind of thing, because that was the stereotypical thing yep. that they were doing at car shows at the time. So all my friends, being males, looking over at the girls, not paying attention to me to keep the cars moving, and I'm getting screamed at on the headset. <laughs> What's going on over there? So finally, I went like this, right? Look at me, look at me, and I dropped my fingers. Now, Rob sees this, he comes running over, City, we're gonna do the big scene. And here's the thing, when you launch the cars, we gotta build some excitement. So what happens is the cars pull up and they go, actually, I go like this, I just drop my fingers and the cars take off. He's like, cut, 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 cut. He comes over, he says, you can't do that. So, do what? We gotta build the excitement. You ever seen uh, Top Gun? Wow. Remember the shot on the aircraft carrier? where they're right at the beginning of the movie where the guy's out standing on the deck and he's going like this. And then he goes, that is mm-hmm. that's what I want you to do. So I can't do that. All my friends are going to watch that. <laughs> 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 well try yeah. to come up with something else. And then I went right back to doing what I was doing, which was telling the guys to watch me. And then he said, well, I have some thumb gestures and all that kind of stuff. And so that's what I did. And to this day when i drive with friends, when we pull up to a stoplight together, they look over him and they go like this. And this.
0: <laughs> I love it. That's funny. It's never
2: going to go away.
0: You're part of history. I think it's cool. Mm.
1: <laughs> Come on. I'm sure now that's a thing around.
0: They're just jealous. I don't think it's jealousy. I think it's
2: <laughs> you embarrass yourself for
0: money. <laughs> we've, we've all done it. <laughs>
1: Since The Fast and the Furious was released in 2001, there have been eight sequels and a spinoff, with yet another sequel released recently. I wondered if Craig was excited for the new movie.
2: There's a super in it, right? Yes. Yes. An orange one. An orange one. An orange one. That's good. I'm glad to see that car make it to be. The movies are just guilty fun now. They're popcorn movies. I go in there and I see all these wonderful, expensive cars. And then they all get blown up and I love it. <laughs> I still what can I tell you? I still love it. It's not a movie about street racing anymore, which is good and bad, mostly good, that it's not. They're family now. All these people are family. It's like yeah. your extended family that comes over for that barbecue once a year. Yeah. yeah. So that's the way I approach these movies now. It's just good, clean fun.
0: I'd like to take the opportunity to thank Craig Lieberman for coming on Toyota Untold. He was an amazing guest and it was incredibly exciting to hear what goes into preparing cars for a movie like this. We asked him if there was any advice he wanted to give to our listeners.
2: We're in the golden age of automobiles, right? The cars have never made more horsepower. They've never been better. Uh, they've never been put together better. It kept me out of trouble. I didn't have money or time for anything else. I was in the garage spending my money on car parts. Nothing puts a smile on your face like a full tank of gas in a great car.
1: Craig Lieberman, thank you very much for being with us today on Toyota Untold and sharing your vast wealth of knowledge.
2: We greatly appreciate it. And my honor and my privilege.
1: Thanks once again to Craig Lieberman. If you want to hear more from Craig, you can check out his YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash Craig Lieberman, that's C R A I G L I E B E R M A N, or find him on Instagram where he's Craig Lieberman underscore 42.
0: And while you're at it, you should keep up with Toyota Untold by making sure you're following the show on whatever podcast platform you use.
1: You can also follow us on toyota.com. Yes, we have a website. And we can't stress how much we appreciate it when people take the time to rate and review us, subscribe and like, tell your friends. So please, if you're enjoying the show, do all of those things.
0: And if you have any feedback for us, questions, suggestions, if you just like wanna talk to us, Or if you have a topic you'd like to hear on a future episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at toyota.com links to all of the things we just mentioned will be included in the show notes. So check them out there too. All right. Thanks
1: for listening everyone until next time I'm Tyler and I'm Kelsey and this is Toyota untold. This podcast is brought to you by Toyota Motor Sales, USA Incorporated and may not be reproduced or redistributed in whole or in part without prior permission of Toyota. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and our hosts and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Toyota. Please note that Toyota is not responsible for any errors or the accuracy or timeliness of the content provided. Used with permission, all rights reserved worldwide.